brought to you by Prep Matters and the Self-Driven Child. And you decide in the morning, tomorrow morning, we're going to make pancakes. And so the kid gets up in the morning and they're like, you promised we'd make pancakes. And you're standing there and you have hidden the cup measure. But... You still have a half cup measure and a third cup measure and a quarter cup measure. And so it is up to the kid to help you figure out how you're going to make these pancakes. That's a way of making learning relevant to the kid and making learning relevant to the real world. I love it. And this is why my son's eyelids twitch (laughs) when we ask them if they want pancakes. (laughs) How important are standardized tests? Why isn't my child doing well in school? Do you need a high school diploma to apply to Harvard? Education is one of our most cherished institutions, but it can also be one of our most exasperating. And it's where almost all of our children go from toddlers learning their ABCs to critically thinking adults stepping out into the world. I talk with experts in helping teens and tweens navigate the transition to adulthood in order to bring you the tools you need to help grow resilient, self-driven, and successful young adults. I'm Ned Johnson, and this is Prep Talks. Joining me today is Jess Leahy, a veteran teacher of middle school and high school and author of The Gift of Failure and the forthcoming Addiction Inoculation out in April 2021. Her husband, Dr. Tim Leahy, is an infectious diseases expert and director of medical ethics at the University of Vermont Medical Center. Thanks, uh, thanks guys, for joining me. I'm really excited to have this conversation. Your, uh, your terrific article, Back to School in a Pandemic, a guide to all the factors keeping parents and educators up at night, was just published in the Washington Post. I look forward to the conversation. So you're, you're both parents, and you've spent your careers helping people consider how to balance risk. Tim, Tim you as a physician and expert in both infectious diseases and clinical ethics, which I understand is really about in sort of balancing important competing considerations. Is that a kind of fair way to describe medical ethics? It's a great way to think about it. You know, uh, when physicians and nurses are in the intensive care unit trying to figure out whether to continue life support or not in collaboration with a family, you have to get really good at figuring out, well, what do I prioritize most and what really are the factors that should influence the decision? And so it seemed like a natural to link that to something even more complicated, like deciding to go back to school in 2020. More than more than more than two variables involved in that, and and Jess, as a teacher and parenting expert, um, you've spent a career really helping children and parents um, teach them about the vital role of setbacks, mistakes, calculations, miscalculations, and failures. And it sure seems like you had a few of those al- along the last few months here. Um, <laughs> yeah. But you write that these failures are the very experiences that teach kids to be resourceful, persistent, innovative, and resilient citizens of the world, which kind of seems like the point of education and parenting generally. But again, it sounds to me like trade-offs. Um, yeah. What seems- and well, and talk about talk about risk, um, evaluating risk. As parents, we can often be uniquely bad <laughs> at evaluating <laughs> risk when it comes to our kids, mainly because the way we calculate risk often has a lot to do with the emotion that it sort of rises up in us. Um, I got to write another piece for the Washington Post a while back about the crazy ways that we as humans evaluate risk, like the Mm -hmm. scarier, the more dramatic. There was, I don't know if you remember, there was like that Momo challenge thing that was going around on the internet and all the pair, everyone was up in arms and it was crazy. And yet, you know, we're more worried about, you know, our kids hurting themselves because of a weird challenge that really didn't 
exist. Right. Um, but we forget to ask them to wear their seatbelt. I mean, we are just exquisitely bad at weighing risk as parents because there's so much emotion involved. So, you know, Tim has to do that really difficult stuff with like end of life care and, and dealing with not just, you know, the fact that we're losing our mother, but I have all these separate needs about the love I never got from my mother. And is this my opportunity to like finally do the right thing and get her approval before she dies? And then as parents, you know, we're also having to deal with this, like uh, the baggage from our past and and all the other things that um, go into weighing risk. And so it's not our fault that we're really bad at it, but we can be so, so bad at it. Not, you know, just because there's so much else involved other than the statistics around the risk involved. Well, and as I understand it, particularly when you get to people in their state of anxiety, that the intensity of the feeling, the intensity of the emotion really has no correlation to the accuracy of the threat, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the thing that the the worry that I hear most from parents when I'm talking about, you know, respecting kids' privacy online and things like that are, you know, well, but there's someone, you know, the, the equivalent of there's someone waiting in a van at the end of the street to pick my kid up and take them away if I let them walk around the block by themselves. And, you know, the reality is, and actually, I got in a lot of trouble at a speaking event once um, because I talked about the actual risk of kids being sex trafficked. And not that there's, of course, the risk of kids being sex trafficked. We need to talk about that stuff. It's really important. We need to talk to kids about, you know, their aunt. But this crowd was exquisitely worried about sex trafficking in their area. And I mentioned that maybe we should focus on things like, you know, seatbelt wearing and, you know, uh, things like that. Um, and I got a ton of blowback. In fact, the security officer at the school walked out. He was so angry with me. And it turns out that there were all kinds of very real reasons that that community in particular was worried about sex trafficking. And it had nothing to do with the risk in their area of sex trafficking. It had to do with the fact that some elders in their community had been arrested for it. And the police were finally making it a thing because they were getting a lot of blowback for the fact that they hadn't prosecuted these people early on. So it's very much in that community's sort of brain, but it had nothing to do with that particular community. And at the same time, that school um, kicks out kids for being gay because it was a religiously affiliated school. And one of the biggest predictors of kids being alienated and put at risk for things like sex trafficking are not being accepted by their family for who they are and not having an adult in their lives who accepts them no matter what. And so, you know, I, it's, there's so much that goes into evaluating risk as parents and very little of it sometimes has to do with the hard numbers. And mm. luckily I'm married to a statistician. <laughs> so I get these little reminders every once in a while of, of what I need to pay attention to. And it's a, it's an excellent point that, that sort of proximity of, of a threat or perceived proximity of a threat. Uh, you know, Tim, I assume this is part of the reason why um, we as families, we as a community, we as a country are struggling in that if, you know, you as a, as a, as a physician have, have had all sorts of experiences already with people who've been affected by this disease or, or families who've, who've been affected probably take this incredibly, incredibly seriously. And people who don't yet know anyone are kind of like, Vish. I mean, is, is that, is that, is that kind of what you, what you see with folks? I think it's a mixture, actually. You know, partly the the lack of familiarity with it could make somebody be cavalier about it. They they just don't they haven't seen somebody gasp for breath from COVID nineteen, and so how could it mean anything to them? I also think there's the other end of the spectrum where 
it can be such a nebulous, unknown thing that it can almost feel like you're being stalked by this monster in your very home, even when there is no risk. Mm-hmm. So I, I think, uh, I think the uncertainty itself and the the novelty of this pandemic has also driven fear. I almost see this as a like a personality test. You know, if you walk into this, you know, if in December of 2019 you were especially risk averse and really afraid of um, you know, sort of uh, intangible things in your life. You were the kind of person who washed their hands as soon as they got home anyway, after being out in the world, this is really freaking you out from a sense of personal risk. Whereas if you were the kind of person who was likely to skydive and base jump, I would guess you're used to grappling with risk and you might be a little more inclined to pretend like uh, wearing masks are is for ninnies. Mm. I'm, I'm smiling because I, have, I had a staff meeting uh, with my, my whole um, group uh, uh, late January, maybe first week of February when this stuff was just starting to come out. And I tend to be a person who's incredibly risk tolerant, much, much to the dismay of my lovely wife, um, except there's some little corner of my brain, brain that is singularly devoted to the threat of global pandemic viruses. And I, and I really don't, I don't know what the, you know, that Rorschach test uh, says about me, but it's, it was coming up. I said, you know, I think we should be buying IPVO digital cameras. And people are looking at me like, uh, sure, Ned. <laughs> Not a time that I'm actually happy to say I told you so, but, uh, well, I think it was early on in this pandemic, um, I offered on, I roped Tim into something that, you know, it was very generous of him to give so much of his time because at the beginning of this pandemic, I'm trying Tim to was, think of which example <laughs> of that activity you're going to say. Early, early in this pandemic, when suddenly Tim is, you know, just flat out working his guts out. I'm like, what if we did a Facebook Live about, you know, just discussion with an ID doc? And uh, we got so many amazing questions. Mm. Like I could hardly keep up with the questions we got, but I thought it was really telling that a lot of the questions were not big picture questions. They were about the minutia of, should I sterilize my groceries before I bring them into the house? And I think that's really, it's, it's symbolic for me anyway, of what I see a lot in the parenting community, which is this, when there is an unknown, I need to control every single detail to make every single detail as at least not just to know about it, but to have a plan in place for it. Because as you well know, when it comes to humans and feeling like we have self-efficacy and feeling we like we have autonomy, the more we feel like we have control over something, the more confident we can feel in our ability to handle it. And it is also a personality test. There are certainly people that are more that are more inclined to lean in that direction. But I thought it was interesting that, you know, it wasn't about the real big pictures. It was these tiny little things that people felt like if they can just wrap their arms around that, it could be safe. And that's unfortunately just not the way we can live our lives. really interesting point. I I I stumbled across, uh, uh, there's a piece yesterday at Michigan State University about how the placebo effect works with folks, even if they're told it's a placebo right and and that that has to I mean Tim you know the 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 physiology of more more than I but, but certainly that has to get back to your your point Jess about feeling a sense of control it makes people feel better lowers their stress um, which which yeah. you know has a whole host of benefits because you, you're you simply think better when you're less stressed well and don't you think actually some of the anti-mask stuff is in the similar vein I mean mm. that's an attempt to I am going to 
control my autonomy. I'm going to plant my my flag in the ground on something and have control over that, even if it's counterintuitive oh, to what actually works. What a really good, really good point. So it's not, um, it, 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 you know, arguably works against um, kind of best medical advice, but for that person specifically is perhaps a way to soothe. Um, I, well, I, I try to think about it as a, my friends and I, we have this, uh, I have a podcast with two friends and we read a ton. It's a podcast about writing. And so we talk a lot about reading, but one of the things that we joke about a lot is that if a book has been on the, like a massive bestseller, there's a pretty good chance we haven't read it simply because we've decided to be, um, we just don't want to be told what to do. And so if, you know, and I, I get that these are probably bestsellers for a reason and there's probably a really lovely story that, and, and yet I go to look at what to read next and I'm like, no, well, I can't read those because everyone's reading those. It's my little tiny protest or something. And that makes me feel, I don't know, makes me feel like I have some sort of stake in my own autonomy, even if it's a small thing. And maybe masks are the same thing. Maybe that's some sort of like, are my reading choices ill-advised? Well, I probably should read that crawdad book about the crawdad singing. I haven't read it yet and I hear it's lovely, but that's my very small stake in the ground over what, you know, I'm not going to do, darn it. And, you know, who knows, maybe the, the mask thing is similar. I don't know. I'm Since there is a person who's nodding his head at me and um, actually has some experience in these things. Maybe we should defer to him. I'm just hypothesizing here. I, I think you're on the money. I, I also think um, denial is a powerful way to deal with risk. I think it's comforting to just uh, pretend like the pandemic isn't out there and that it's a liberal media conspiracy to... Uh, I haven't worked out the details, but it's it's not real, and and and, and I, I think that's that's uh, it's uh, all of us having our different approaches to dealing with this risk. Hmm. So you know, and it's not like we can, it's not like we can uh, entirely standardize the way people experience risk. We wouldn't want to, but I think if we know that these are the different drivers, then you can kind of say, well, for you, the message that might work is this, whereas. For somebody else, it, it may be entirely different, and, and and that makes us probably a little more effective. That, that's a, I'd love for you to talk more about that. That's a really interesting idea that we're sort of better off if not everyone is is similarly or, or uniformly um, stress tolerant, right, or or, or um, threat tolerant, right? Because we, we want some people who are. My brother's a my twin brother's a paramedic uh, and has worked in emergency medicine for a heck of a long while, and for a while was a param for was a, a fireman as well. And I think the normal human instinct when, you know, I don't know, some kind of structure is on fire is to sit back and go, hmm, glad I'm not in it. And then there are, of course, people who have the temperament say, I'm going to go in there, make sure that everything's okay and everyone in there is is, is out. Uh, and so we kind of want that human equivalent of bio biodiversity, right? That's exactly right. And and, and the, the trick is that we are not inclined to see that diversity as good when we're dealing with stressful circumstances. You know, you can imagine that that if I'm the guy that wants to save everybody, I want everybody in the building to line up behind me and exit through that door, you know? And I don't I don't want any ifs, ands, or buts. I don't want any argument. I don't want the people who are running back to get that cherished object. Just come with me. And so uh, I, I think this is a... a at the same time that there are natural desires, like Jess is talking about, to control your autonomy or to pretend like it's not a threat, there's also the desire on the part of leaders to discount those issues and to steamroll over them. So I think I think uh, the 
the for me the the best way forward is to try to figure out what really has been proven to work to get people to change their behaviors and to support that with the way we communicate about it. Well, let me pivot a little bit toward, towards uh, a really nice part of the article. You you guys have this terrific um, kind of pro con checklist of of how to help people make decisions about sending their kids to school and not or not. Can you can you talk through that? Um, because what I what I loved about it, uh, going back to your point, Jess, that, that so many so many of our, our our decisions are emotional, and we're all kind of a sort of sort of dreaming of of going back to normal or a perfect solution where we where we can have everything. And of course, as we started the conversation, we're forced we're we're, we're stuck with trade offs. It's it's going to be an or. It's not going to be an and at least for a while. So can can you talk us through that? Thing for Tim, folks that have Tim was that. Tim was the mastermind behind that, but I the one, and I'm going to leave that to him. But I think, from my perspective, the part that appealed to me about the checklist is this very thing we were talking about: is that there are so many factors that it feels overwhelming, and for a lot of people, that decision is really being taken out of their hands. So the checklist was really just our gesture to simplify as much as possible and give a little bit of autonomy and control back to parents to at least have some factors that make sense. Besides that, you know, we're hearing from even from friends and family about I don't know who to trust. There's just, um, you know, I'm, I want to trust this guy over here that has a doctor before his name, but yet there's this guy over here that has a doctor behind his name that is saying the opposite thing. And my parent doesn't believe in it at all. And she's telling me other things. So having some sort of criteria that made sense and was as simple as possible was the, the motivation behind that. But then Tim was in charge of sort of coming up with what those factors should be. Yeah, you, you, uh, uh, you know, there's a piece of this that has to do with giving people a sense of control. You know, if this is, if we're all freaked out in part because it can't, the future isn't knowable and the the nature of the threat is evolving, you know, it's good to sort of just pin it down and say, okay, I'm deciding about this factor. I'm deciding about this just makes you sort of take a deep breath and, and settle into the decision. I also think there's a, there's a piece of this that gets into people's um, naivete about the kind of information processing they're having to do during this. I mean, we're just bombarded with scientific study after political statement after scientific study. And as, as Jess said, different stories are bouncing back and forth. And I read that as, you know, as a, as a scientist who's used to sort of going through this literature, I read that with a, a, a sort of a skeptical eye and using a process that I've been tra- trained to use. And, and one of the most important things I'm doing is deciding which piece of information is credible and which one is not. And yet I do think people are getting different opinions, some from credible sources and some from not credible sources, but they're weighing them equally. And so we were trying to get them to sort of say, don't, don't pay attention to that politician who has no idea what they're talking about. Instead, weigh these facts because that's actually what's going to make you good, make a good decision. Mm, super helpful. And I, and I also like what in that checklist, you make the point that um, for different people, different factors will matter more. Um, you know, if you have a kid who has an underlying health issue, you know, of, of, of being unhealthy, overweight or having asthma or, you know, have, have had childhood cancer or, or, or that protecting him becomes way more important than what may be lost educationally. Right. And so this, I suppose, goes back to point. There's no one size fits all. 
um, to, to the there's also there's also stuff that you know it's becoming clear and you know we couldn't put this in the checklist because there are just so many factors that we would have loved to put in there but you know what's also becoming clear is that for a lot of kids who have really found this troubling found this separation from friends distressing especially those people who have been observing distance um, that this this year has to also be about a lot of sort of social emotional repair and mental health repair for those kids. And so, you know, while we'd love to include everything, keeping it simple and keeping it in just it, it, the focus on uh, medical risk was the easiest thing to do. But there's so much more to talk about as well. Yeah. And I know in your work, Jess, you, you talk about, you know, the, the great teachers say, you know, that education is really about the three R's, right? Of relatedness, relatedness, relatedness. And, you know, the, 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 so many hats that schools have to wear. I mean, depending on the population, it's the one place where kids get a, you know, get a warm meal or have, you know, safe environment and, and, and adults who have the, the time and ability or inclination to really pay attention to them. And so for some kids, the, that kind of socio-emotional part is, is everything. Yeah. And yeah. for other kids that that's, they're good with that. And so the school matters, school, you know, proper education matters more. One thing yeah. that, that, that when I was reading through this, you know, I kept thinking of the, uh, the, the medical concept of triage, right? That we can't, we can't, we can't do everything. Um, and what, and what do we attend to what's really impressing now versus what's important further on down the line. So maybe you could explain to, to, to listeners kind of how triage works and how we might apply that to an, to an educational um, environment this year. Yeah, if you're on the battlefield and a bomb has gone off, and so you're the medic running in with a bunch of bandages, you have to figure out who to go to first. And you have to figure out who's going to be fine for a few minutes while you attend to the sickest people. And so that's the concept of triage is making thoughtful decisions about what to prioritize. And it's, it's, a uh, it's something that, that informs medical practice in general. You try to figure out, you know, which alligator is closest to the boat and, and deal with that. And those sorts of risk, um, evaluations are, uh, critical, uh, to, to medicine, but maybe unfamiliar, I think, to, to most of us. And so I assume, I assume people, I'll interject, interject. I assume most folks could know, get a sense of that by what it feels like when you go to the emergency room and you feel like I need to be seen now when you realize apparently not, right? <laughs> because a whole bunch of other people come in after you and get it seen first because apparently my broken arm doesn't matter as much as, you know, something life-threatening. No, I think, I think, I disagree. I think we do this all the time. I mean, Ned, if someone comes to you and they say, look, um, something got screwed up and my kid just didn't get a whole chunk of these math skills over here. So we really need to increase this kid's math SAT score. But on the other hand, um, he's got these whole, all this other stuff going on over here. He's stressed out and he's anxious and he doesn't understand how the test works, but let's focus on this math. And sometimes your job is to come back and say, well, let's actually look at our priorities here because there are ways that we can approach this particular kid um, and deal with the stuff that's most important. And maybe the anxiety is the most important thing. And I do this in my classroom too. I mean, if, or when I, I always think about this a lot when I'm editing kids' essays, you can't do everything all at once. Right. I can't fix every single part of a kid's essay all at once. So I have to triage or pick my battles. You, mm -hmm. you picking your battles as a parent is the, it really is the same thing as triage. Do I want to help my kid calm down so that they're sort of to, in a place where they can actually hear me or do 
do I want them to comply and do their homework right this second? Which thing, you know, I got to triage those, those needs as well. So I think we do it. And, you know, it's, it's a, something that we understand, I think, on an intuitive level. Hmm. Oh, come on. But, Tim, but, Tim is making but. faces at me. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, that's a, that's a, a great point. My learned interlocutor, but, uh, <laughs> I, uh, even the way you made it, actually sort of highlights one of the challenges we've all had through this pandemic, which is you focused on the triaging the the most important need for that one particular student. Mm-hmm. And I think one oh, of the that's things that yeah. it's hard for us to focus on is what does what does my kid need the most today in this pandemic? And how do I do that in a way that isn't like really bad for this other kid over here? Yeah. And, and of course, like, you know, parents' job is not to first take care of some other parent's kid. And yet schools are totally balancing these things. You know, how do right. I, how do I provide schooling that's good enough for really young kids who probably need to be in person more than a high school kid at the same time that I don't totally torpedo the educational needs of a high school student. And so that's why I think your example, Ned, of, of triage is so great, is that we are deciding who needs that school classroom right. the very most. This is actually gets at the heart of the debate over the the, the pods, the pandemic pods, mm-hmm. too, because because on one hand, and there the the <clears throat> this is why I love this debate about the pods, because people are positive that they're either really bad or really good. And that's an incorrect way to look at this because if we look at them as a way that wealthy people get all the best resources for their kids and suddenly all of the wealthy people, all those kids are not losing ground. That's one way we can look at this. And is that good? Absolutely not. Uh, You know, I've been talking about um, the relationship between pandemic pods and um, the book, Something Must Be Done About Prince Edward County, which is, um, you know, after Brown versus Board of Education, this one county in Virginia decided, fine, we will have no public schools. We will just create this one private school over here for the white kids. And so we take all the resources over here and there's nothing left. And by the way, you know, We have to look at the fact that, for example, in Boston, about 70% of the kids in Boston had no contact with an educator after COVID started last year. And I'm talking about in public schools. So there's that way to look at it. Or as Tim has brought up, we've had lots of conversations about this. You can look at it from the perspective of, from a community perspective, if you can afford to keep your kid at home so that the teacher and the other kids are exposed to fewer individuals and all and all of those contacts that those people may have come in contact with, it does make the classroom safer for the people that are in that classroom. So weighing and which kids get you, yes. you, know, you could even add to that that if you worry that the first approach is going to disadvantage people who are already societally at risk. You could argue that this, the second approach of having less transmission is going to protect people who are at highest risk of, of COVID. And guess what? That's that's people at the lower income level. That's blacks. That's that's the same vulnerable people. And so, which is it? And and and, and I think you're totally right, Jess. The answer isn't one or the other. Yeah, and my brain always goes to, um, you know, as was Bill and I talk on our book that the most important outcome of high school is not where you go to college; it's developing the brain you're going to carry into adulthood. And and you know, I worry so much. I mean, there's so many things about the, the the disruption caused by COVID, but one of the things I worry so much about is what's the effect of chronic stress on developing brains, particularly to your point, 
Tim, you know, the, the, you know, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation came out with, you know, a year and a half ago about the, 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 the greatest causes of, of adolescent stress. One is poverty. Two is trauma. Three is discrimination. Four is intense pressure to succeed. Oh, and then let's just drop a, you know, a global pandemic virus yeah. on top of that whole thing and see who breaks. And so one of the things for me when I think about triage and, and, and very much your work, Jess, of kind of short-term problems, long-term problems. And, you know, if my kid, from my perspective, if my kid doesn't get trigonometry down, I could give a rat's patchouli <laughs> compared to, you know, where does she or he come out in terms of, you know, in terms of mental health, in terms of resilience. Actually, mm-hmm. that'd be a fun thing. Can you, you want to talk a little bit about what we understand about how resilience is developed? Because I think all of us are looking for, can we find any silver linings out of this? You know, we know, like, if you think about the greatest generation, that couldn't have been the, right from the Great Depression to the Second World War, hot diggity, this is a wonderful time to be alive. But still... Yeah. Well, I I definitely, one place I want to start from is that we have to remember that when we tend to talk about, oh, what doesn't kill you, make you makes you stronger, um, often the lens we're looking at that through is from a place of, you know, kids who generally have what they need, who, you know, are getting all their needs met on both Maslow and Bloom and, and have food and have all that stuff. Because for a lot of kids, that's not true. What doesn't kill them actually does end up killing them. And that's because of adverse childhood experiences right, and right, the CDC's right. list of adverse childhood experience, which by the way, does not include global pandemic. Um, uh, you know, I, uh, Felitti, uh, Dr. Felitti, I don't think could could have um, could have foreseen that um, ad- that a pa- global pandemic to global pandemic would have been one of the things we'd have to control for when we're looking for a score for adverse childhood experiences. But when we do talk about resilience and we talk about um, what does build resilience, it has to do. There are a lot of factors actually. Um, some of them have to do with the support in the community. There's a lot of research out there about if kids have one supportive adult that they can look to. On top of that, if we have um, a supportive adult who's also a positive role model, if we have uh, a community around them that are willing to help them. Uh, especially when they do fail at something to help them get to that next iteration so that they can feel like they're, they're not stupid because they did something stupid, that kind of idea. Um, if we can get kids, and this is, you know, back in your territory, a feeling of uh, self-efficacy, if we can give them a feel, feelings of autonomy. One of the things we know about um, long-term pain and suffering is that our human default when faced with long-term pain and suffering is to sort of go into this state of um, helplessness. Mm -hmm. This is all based on, um, if you want to read the research on that, the best place to go is um, to Martin Seligman and his research. He did some metadata. He has some metadata on learned helplessness. The best way to short circuit that, to sort of get around that that default uh, circuit, which is to go to learned helplessness, is to give control back to the subject. You can see that in studies of animals in particular, if you look at all the like rat studies on learned helplessness, those who were raised without a a sense of control will go into their adult lives never feeling like they can have act and change bad um, the negative uh, stimuli around them. Like they'll consider continue to allow themselves to be shocked with electricity without ever it ever occurring to them that they could just move and it would stop. Um, so there's a, a lot of things that we can do, and a lot of it has to do with support, emotional support. A lot of it has to do with um, autonomy and um, self-efficacy. The feeling that if I 
do something, if things around me stink, that I could do something and change it. And in the classroom where I taught for five years, where kids were, which was in an inpatient drug and alcohol rehab, there were a lot of kids who had been raised, and this is a drug and alcohol rehab for kids. There were a lot of kids who were raised in an environment where if they tried to change their environment, absolutely nothing would change. So they learned over time that it's not even worth it to try to do something. So giving kids that sense of self-efficacy is is one of the most important things that we can do. And and I was going to ask about um, your point about um, kids having a connection to at least one supportive adult. I mean, you know, as I understand, to repeat that back... We know that the the A model for developing resilience is to deal with or struggle with a difficult challenge and and be able to cope with it, but often to do it with the nurturing support you know right. of, of some emotionally attentive adult. Um, some kids have two wonderfully supportive you know adults in, in <laughs> yeah. the family. Some yeah. people have one, the other ones yeah so so, and, and some kids really kind of kind of struggle all together. Um, and my, what I know from the literature is that the families where they, where they're, where there's, there are more headwinds. It's harder for parents to be emotionally supportive of the kids when they're really struggling themselves. And so I right. worry about a whole group of, of, of kids across the country who are going to struggle because their parents are struggling and thinking about what can we do? One, two, um, if kids can't find that connection in school, what, what are the ways we can help kids find connection to a nurturing caregiver if mom or dad can't do that right now? Mm-hmm. And also, what are things that we as a, as a society can do to support the parents so that the parents can, can, can play that ideal role of supporting their kids? I wonder it's if there's a, a way into this conversation, partly from um, some of the things we've learned about military service and about the resilience of healthcare providers. We know I'd that love to hear people about that. You know, people who have served in war and seen bloodshed and and seen, you know, the the greatest stress of their lives, some will come back with post-traumatic stress disorder and some will come back feeling proud that they served and uh, 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 being welcomed by their community. Or similarly, you can have nurses and physicians who deal with life and death every day and are burned out and terrorized by it and develop the same PTSD or who are proud of their work. And so people have studied, you know, what's, what's in each of those experiences that helps, helps one thrive and the other one not. Hmm. And some of the ingredients are making sense. You know, if, if, if you can make a story of yourself that explains why there was meaning to your involvement in that experience, you're much more likely to walk out sort of saying, oh, I was part of a ragtag band of people assigned to save lives, to rescue that soldier, to accomplish that mission. And it was worth it to go through that danger or that stress. And that I was a key contributor to that mission. You can imagine you would come out as opposed to feeling like you're just subject to the whims of some ununderstandable external factor. The people in Washington didn't care about me, that none of their orders made any sense. And here I was in the middle of all this suffering for no reason. You know, those, those two different mindsets mm. can accompany each other on the battlefield, but those two soldiers are going to return home with totally different experiences. And the same is true of nurses and physicians. And so here we are, 
all of us confronting the biggest historical event of our lives. And so I think it, it asks the question of how can, how can we as leaders, how can we as teachers, how can we as parents serve that, that meaning making process for the people who are frightened around us? And how can we, how can we look back in 2040 and be proud of the way that we as a community, as a family, as a country rose to the occasion? I love that. So those, it sounds, I mean, it sounds like a, a model or prescription for parents with their kids to have those conversations about this sucks, but <laughs> right. That's right. And, and, and I don't think it has to, you know, sort of linking this to some of our defense mechanisms we were talking about. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You don't have to be in total denial to nonetheless make meaning. You know, I can, I can tell my, my kids, I am afraid walking mm -hmm. into that hospital room because I don't know if I'm totally safe, but I'm going to use the science to try to make it as safe as possible. And there's a reason why I'm walking in that room because I want to save that person's life. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, and you can, you can adopt that mindset going to the grocery store. Right. I don't know totally if it's a hundred percent safe because maybe I'm going to touch the wrong piece of broccoli, but I'm going to use science. So I'm going to wear my mask and I'm going to wash my hands. And there's a reason for that because I am feeding my family. I love it. So courage isn't the absence of fear. It's being afraid and finding a reason to do it anyway. Can I add one more layer to this, which is I've been thinking a lot recently about a book that I read ages ago, and I actually got to write about it for The Atlantic because it's a book by Valerie Mahomes, M-A-H-O-L-M-E-S. And she's the chief of pediatric trauma and critical illness um, at the National Institutes of Child Health and Human Development. And she wrote this incredible book about um, hope. Mm. And the importance of hope in helping kids get out of uh, helping people out of poverty. And one of the cool things about that discussion of hope is that, yes, it's about hope. And there's a, another wonderful book called Making Hope Happen by Shane, the late great Shane Lopez. Um, his his uh, his book, Making Hope Happen, is a, it's a wonderful book. And he defines hope as a combination of two things, being able to envision that your world will be a better place and feeling like you can do something to make that happen, which sounds a lot like self-efficacy, but I like it couched that way when it comes down to hope. But even in Valerie Mahomes' book about hope, she talks about the fact that it comes back to that having that one person because it's not just about having hope yourself. It's about being given hope by other people. So I see as parents, I see one of our really important roles right now and as teachers, obviously, or any kind of community leader, whether that's a pastor or a camp director or whomever you are, is to help kids have a little bit of hope that things can get better. Um, even if we don't feel like we have any control over it right now. And some of that we can do by doing this thing called temporal distancing, where we talk to our kids um, about, you know, it feels really difficult right now, but next year, hopefully when you're able to be with your friends again, that temporal distancing, especially for little kids can help give them a little bit of hope that things will be better. But in the meantime, I think, one of my primary duties right now as a parent is this keeping the hope alive because, man, I lose it some days. And um, I just, 
I just think that it's when we lose hope that we are really apt to fall into that state of learned helplessness and to stop wearing masks and to stop going out and to get depressed and to feel like there's just nothing any of us can do. And that's when we lose connection with the rest of our community. That's when we lose connection. We lose connection to that idea that if I just do my part, this can be better. Because if we fall into that learned helplessness thing, I think we all are just lost. And hmm. I, I know that uh, uh, the Bruce, Bruce Filer has a new book out called Life is in mm-hmm. the Transitions. And if I, if I understand it correctly, it says one of the things that's most helpful to children is to have their parents, even grandparents, verbalize the kind of oscillating, you know, the experiences of life of up and down and up and down. Uh, and I, my grandfather, who ended up, you know, was a chemistry, had a, a chemist at his own company, was, you know, successful, you know, relatively successful in upstate New York, but he he graduated college um, in 1931, which is probably not the best job market in the world. Uh, and he was a cross country runner uh, and weighed about 125 pounds when he graduated college. Now, what's the natural job for a guy who weighs 125 pounds and is a freaking chemistry major? Oh yes, oh yes, a security guard at, at a juvenile detention center, you know, basically juvie jail back in the 1930s. <laughs> oh my. Gosh, right? He, he he could have got a job as a twizzle stick, right? But but the idea that 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 was pretty rough place to be after four years of college and up and down and up and up and down, um, and so you know I I think we all we, it may be a little whistling past the graveyard here, but the sense that this too shall pass, we just don't know when. And obviously, you know, Tim, with your experience, you have a lot. You know, you have had the advantage of seeing people really flattened and come back and, 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 and people die and, and still life goes on. And I suspect that one of the things that's harder for, for kids, particularly little kids, is this is so darn new. They get to have to invoke, you know, just as great work, the gift of, of kind of meaningful failures. And, and I assume that that kind of verbalizing thing is a, is a really helpful thing for young kids, for young doctors, for young parents to say, we're going to get through this. We just, we just got to figure out how. I think that's right. I, I also think, you know, we know from uh, kids who are sick that they can deal with more than we really give them credit for. You know, mm. if you, you see a child who's confronting leukemia or some other serious illness, our natural instinct sometimes can be to tiptoe around them and, you know, not want to scare them too much by the illness. But in fact, young kids are actually pretty blunt about their illness. Hmm. They have thought about sickness and they do think about death. And so, um, in fact, our kids are thinking about that stuff in the context of this pandemic. So the question is not, can we insulate them from the fear of the pandemic? Cause nobody's free of that, but we can help them, um, feel like that's a controllable thing that life makes sense. Um, I, I think actually it sort of speaks to one of the learning objectives. I think of this big, uh, global curriculum here. Uh, is uh, about citizenship, you know, and, oh, and we, you know, in, in school curricula, at least my experience of it was that talking about citizenship was about the stalest stuff you could talk about because it was just, you know, be a good person. Like, who, how, how do you make that interesting? But if you talk about, um, well, here's here's an example of a doctor, a teacher, uh, an inspiring politician, whoever it was, who subordinated their self-interest to a greater goal, exhibited this talent. Here's a scientist who worked day and night to try to figure out how to create a new drug to do this. And don't you want to grow up to be that kind of a person? And here's how you do it. 
you know, that could be an incredible formative moment in that child's life. That's really good. That's really good. I had one other thought that just came back to mind. We've talked a lot about um, how we're all trying to find a sense of control, including, you know, finding a sense of meaning to, to, to give purpose or to what we're experiencing. One of the things it seems to me is that as parents, we have such a natural inclination to want to protect our kids and that we probably are, to, to build on what you're saying, Tim, about kids being sick, we, we probably have this tendency to want to protect kids, to, to control situations in part because it makes us feel better. But um, I, I stumbled on the research of Jesse Borelli, who talks about that the things that we do as parents to feel more in control makes lowers our stress, but it increases the stress of kids. So I'm wondering if you, if you have thoughts on, you know, in, it, imagine this in a moment where a parent thinks a kid should go to school or should, maybe a parent said, said a kid should not go to school and the kid thinks he, it is safe to go to school. Do you have guidance for helping parents talk through that when the kids don't see eye to eye and evaluate and risk? I think we have to, unfortunately, we have to do a quick little diversion into brain development because I think it's important to understand how kids calculate risk, which is different from how adults calculate risk. And, um, you know, my expertise is mostly in adolescence, um, but there are a few myths that we have to sort of bust first. And one of those myths is that um, we can't possibly control what adolescents do because they just don't understand cause and effect, or they don't understand risk. And that is absolutely not true. In fact, adolescent brains are often uniquely attuned to um, the negative of things that can happen, but, but they weigh risk differently. Adolescents in particular tend to weigh, and, and younger kids actually do this as well, weigh, because their frontal lobe is not fully developed. And that's where we tend to do a lot of this stuff. Um, they tend to weigh the possible positive outcomes more heavily than they weigh the possible negative outcomes. And then put on top of that, like especially right now with COVID and, and sort of managing risk and, oh, you know, we're about to send kids back to college and there are going to be so many temptations to have parties and they're going to weigh that risk of going to a party very differently than we will because mm. there are things that are more important to them than the COVID thing. Like, meeting people in college. My dad told me that the most important relationships I'll ever develop in my whole life are in college. And if I don't go to this thing, I'm going to miss out. So if you, I just wrote this whole book on substance abuse and preventing substance abuse in kids. And one of the things we know about kids' brains also is that they have baseline lower levels of dopamine than adults do. And so when kids tell us that, for example, they're bored, they're not just blowing smoke. They really are baseline often quite bored, even though they have plenty of stimulus around them. So I think it's important to understand that if we're going to talk to kids and adolescents about these risks, we need to maybe front load or emphasize the negative parts of things that can happen. The other thing is this is a, this is not all like bad talk. This is an incredible opportunity to do one of the most important things that we do with kids in terms of teaching or parenting, which is helping build empathy and perspective taking. So for me, it might be easier if I was going to talk to my eight-year-old about the reasons that 
for, you know, let's say, uh, let's say my kid gets the sniffles and I have to keep him home from school because it's, he is now a risk to his friends. And he's really upset about that. And he's like, can't we just not mention the sniffles? Da, 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 da. You can say, well, look, let's talk about it this way. How do you think your friend Michael might feel if you went to school with these sniffles and a week from now, Michael gets sick and Michael's mom has cancer. And so she can't be around people that are sick. So let's think about how Michael would feel if he made his mom sick. Sometimes that can be easier for kids to wrap their heads around. And P.S. It's a really important thing that we need to be doing for our kids, which is this perspective building and empathy, um, helping build their, their sense of empathy. So helping kids see what could happen without scaring them is going to be a really important part of helping them understand and weigh risk right now, because they're always going to, you know, it's going to be really hard for them to see, especially younger kids to see past the possible benefits of just pretending I don't have the sniffles um, and not understand what could happen two weeks from now. That temporal part is really hard for younger kids. Uh, mm. I think adapting developmentally appropriate language for the for kids is going to be really important. But I, I think using that added that added lever of um, other people's perspective on what they do and how you are actually, as Tim said, being a hero, you are doing your your duty to the community. You feel like you can't go out and help so-and-so right now. He's on crutches and you want to be able to carry his books for him. But on the other hand, you're being as helpful to him by staying away from him if you're not feeling well than you would be if you were helping him in this moment. There are lots of ways we can help kids understand risk, even if it isn't about their immediate, because a lot of kids are going to say, well, I heard that I can't get it anyway, or even if I do get it, I'm not going to get sick. That's what they're saying on the news that you keep on 24-7 in the kitchen all the time. Um, by the way, turn the television off. <laughs> but kids are, kids are going to hear that, and it's going to be really hard to counter some of that um, some of that messaging, which is especially in places where, you know, there are people a little more resistant to masks and distancing. When I, I love your, your, the, the approach of, um, the approach through empathy, because it, 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 because to me, it really ties into what Tim was talking a moment ago about citizenship, that mm -hmm. the, you know, the challenges that we all face are ones that we all face, right? And we're not going to be able to solve this as individuals, we're in many ways, the, 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 the real enduring solutions are ones that require collective action and that requires cooperation. And, and we're so much better able to make some, to take steps to, you know, to, to, to work together to maybe make those small sacrifices that are necessary for the greater good when we can expand at least a little bit our sense of empathy. Um, you know, that why would I sacrifice for me if it, if, if there's no benefit for me and for, to help even the youngest kids to expand their, um, their sense of for whom they're, they're benefiting, I think is a really wonderful way towards ideally moving is towards better collective action. Um, well, and I can't, I can't take this up. I can't miss this opportunity without saying, you know, if parents would like to know a little bit more about that, there's a book out there called Unselfie by mm. Michelle Borba and the entire book. And Michelle Borba is brilliant, but this book Unselfie is really about, um, you know, as the title implies, it's about turning around the camera, stop looking at yourself and turn around the camera around and look at other people. But she has so many really practical tips in that book for kids little all the way through adolescence for building that sense of empathy and the ability to 
you can't understand civic duty unless you have empathy. I don't think that's the essential building block towards getting toward what Tim is talking about, which is this collective sense of, you know, in order to do best for everyone else, I have to start with my actions. There's a, a key piece to this that, that for me actually connects to how you get somebody to quit smoking uh, or eat less chocolate cake or whatever it is. And that has to do with, you know, like if you, if somebody says, well, go be a good citizen or be empathic or uh, could you save the world soon, that can feel overwhelming. And, and you feel like, well, how could I possibly, you know, just, just stop smoking? <laughs> well, that's really hard. And so what are the steps involved? Uh, and not only, you know, how can you achieve what's sort of a global, abstract, almost unapproachable good, but how can you link it to something that you really concretely are passionate about? So, you know, if you are trying to get somebody to quit smoking, you might, uh, you know, I don't, I don't spend a lot of time explaining to people why they should quit smoking. I do that a little bit, but most people know that they should. Instead, I ask them about you know, when, when you think about stopping smoking, what do you think about? What motivates you? And so some people are going to say, oh, I've, I've lost the ability to breathe as well as I want. And I want to be able to take a walk around the park with my wife. And somebody else might say, oh, you know, uh, I'm single now and I'm trying to date and the smell of the cigarettes is alienating to people. Well, so I'm, we're going to develop really different plans for those, those two people to, to quit smoking in a way that works for them. And I think that the same thing is, is true here, you know, that, that each of us has a way that they could, we could contribute to the, to fixing the pandemic, or each of us has sort of a personally right way to be a good citizen. And you have to figure out not only what that is, you know, what are your strengths? You as a student could do this, uh, whereas you as a, a teacher could do something different. But also, why is that so important to you? What about you motivates you to do that? And I think in order to get there, you have to figure out how to connect to who that person is. You gotta, you to, to elicit empathy, you have to be empathic. Mm-hmm. I love that. To me, that sounds like the, you, you know, effectively motivational interviewing of rather than than my trying to tell you the reasons why you should do it trying to be curious about you, how you think to help you really verbalize for yourself the reasons why you want to do this thing, which seems to me, gosh, that seems, seems like that would work really well for school generally, because right now, I think a lot of it, particularly, it looks increasingly like most kids are not going to be back in school. And if the juice that they get for school is their friends and their teachers, and those are both sort of sidelined, you know, how, would you have guys have thoughts on how to help kids find reasons to want to engage with their own learning? And in, in many cases, that may be engaging with learning more than engaging with school, uh, <laughs> because those may you not overlap that well right now. It, this is crazy, uh, but, but Tim and I were talking. So, yes, obviously, I have lots of thought on that. Thoughts yeah. on that, and yeah. it, you know, engagement is one of my favorite things to talk about because when I started teaching at the rehab, I was having to deal with kids who very specifically did not want to be engaged in school because they had been told for so long that they were bad at it. So I love, that's my bag. I love that stuff. But what Tim was talking about is he had a conversation with someone recently and they were talking about, you know, um, what's happened to their kids since school ended. And, um, that kid in particular has really flourished since not being in school because he's had the freedom to learn about the stuff that he really wants to learn about. And 
while that may not be the stuff that we want them to learn, like, is your kid going to suddenly get excited about geometry and decide to learn, you know, high school geometry on their own? No, but there are a lot of ways to connect what they're learning in school to things that your kids do care about. Because engagement starts with relevance and connection, both, you know, that connection is about interpersonal connection, that that connection is about making it so that the learning that they need to do for school is actually relevant to the kid. There's a, there's this wonderful research by Mar- Mary Helen Imordino Yang at USC about emotions and learning. And the more emotionally connected we are to the learning, the more the learning centers in our brain are activated. So, and you know, duh, the more we care about something, the better we're going to learn it. I mean, and my favorite example for that is- I'm sure Dr. Imordino Yang will appreciate that summary of her (laughs) research career. (laughs) Yeah, she's she's a friend, so she can handle a few does from me. But, you know, we, what's fascinating to me, the, the example I gave once on stage when I was doing a speaking event was, you know, I'm just not going to learn the rules of NASCAR because I don't care. You know, it's just not my thing. I don't care about NASCAR. And afterwards, someone came up to me and he said, I can get you to care about NASCAR. And I said, how's, I said, how's that? And he said, well, because you mentioned that you're a big dork and you love learning stuff, especially stuff, you know, related to like history and the humanities. And he said, what if I told you that NASCAR the rules of NASCAR and NASCAR itself grew out of prohibition and rum running. And I was like, oh, that's interesting because this hook is what pulls me in. So for many kids, if a kid loves space, then suddenly you have an in for physics and geometry and some elements of math, or if, you know, there are ways to connect these things. And so for me, the if you want like a really practical tool, many museums are not open right now. However, they still have people on staff whose job is to connect the contents of that museum, especially children's museums and science museums, to the school curricula in their area. So if you call up or email at a museum and say, could you get me in contact with your educational development team or someone who does like community engagement around education? And you ask them, look, my kid is having a really hard time with fractions right now. Do you have any virtual um, exhibits or any learning plans for units around making fractions understandable? I can guarantee you that most museums and I speak at a lot of museums, will say, oh my gosh, yes, of course we do. Thank you for asking. We develop these all the time. What is your kid excited about? And then they can help you um, connect those things. There are ways, even if it's you have a lack of imagination on your part, there are ways you can go out there and, and just Google, like, you know, make math relevant for kids. And there's going to be, there are going to be resources out there for you, but it's up to you to know what's going to help make that learning relevant for your kid. And you know, your kid best. And if your kid trusts you and you have a good relationship with your kid, they're going to share with you what they love. And that may be space and that may be dinosaurs. And that may be, you know, I don't know what, but if you know your kid well, and they're communicating well with you, they're going to give you hints to help you make their learning relevant to them. And then the last little bit is, even if you can't make it learn relevant to them specifically, you can help make learning relevant to the world. And I've used this example a lot, so apologies if you heard it before, but let's say you have a kid in elementary school and fractions are difficult for them. 
and you decide in the morning, tomorrow morning, we're going to make pancakes. And so the kid gets up in the morning and comes down and they're like, you promised we'd make pancakes. And you're standing there and you have hidden the cup measure, but you still have a half cup measure and a third cup measure and a quarter cup measure. And so it is up to the kid to help you figure out how you're going to make these pancakes. That's a way of making learning relevant to the kid and making learning relevant to the real world. And that's one of the best, that's one of the cool things that we can do when our kids are home alone with us (laughs) or in a place where suddenly they're less able to tap into the resources at school. I love and it. this is why my son's eyelids twitch when we ask them if they want pancakes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it makes me think about um, uh, Nadine Burke Harris, who's wonderful work on A scores and, and the and the great book, the deepest well. Yeah, um, I saw her give a talk um, at Politics and Prose here in Washington D.C. And her the stories if I I think I have this right her father was a Jamaican scientist she just she describes in this if I, I think I, I have this close enough to write she said he could make anything be a lesson he said mm-hmm. so he would come home from work a long day of work and my brothers would be sitting there screwing around shooting paper airplanes all over the place but immediately snapped to and he'd go okay wait 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 someone get a stopwatch okay let's time it let's time it okay so we know the gravity is negative 9.8 meters per second squared so if we know this 3.2 seconds we can calculate how far the thing actually went and she said which had the immediate effect of making me of course want to go into science and she's you know of course a physician and, and wonderful researcher blah 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 and had the and they had the equal effect on my twin brothers and my brothers rather of making them stop screwing around because it couldn't take one more <laughs> <laughs> it was wonderful what there a- was a point at which our children started to say things like can you just stop doing the gift of failure thing and help me so you know the, the eye-rolling quotient <laughs> is high yeah well I just I know because you taught Latin my wife's a Latin teacher as well anytime my kids will ask about a, a word you should go right into the into the latin origin of it and i of course as a test prep guy just you know spit out dictionary definitions and uh um they've stopped asking mom it's kind of I'm oh wait, that's, I'm that's status quo in our house <laughs> not only am i looking up the dick into the definition i'm looking into what language it came from and how the root derived and then by then i've lost the children and they're off on a completely different subject but i have the root of the word you know helicopter and right. i am ready to go <laughs> I love it. Well, let me let me ask you know two more quick questions, and I let you guys go off to the important work that you do. Obviously, um, we are all trying to be flexible and meet kids where they are, and meet the you know to your point, just the specific needs that they have. Some of the some of the kids for whom this is a lot harder are in families where they don't have the gift of time as much. You know, the, the, making pancakes into a into a, a fractions lesson is, is easier to do if you're not scarce in terms of time or in terms of resources. And so I'm curious to hear your kind of thoughts or advice for, for those families. Um, and then also for families who have kids who are who need more support, who, who aren't neurotypical, who have special needs. Um, and this is just, it, it, I mean, school is hard for everyone, but it has to be doubly so for kids who have those additional headwinds. Tim's waiting for me to answer. I mean, these, it, it gets more complicated when your life gets more complicated. And, and mm. when I talk about making pancakes and having the time to, to do these kind of conversations, this does come from a place of having a privilege of the privilege of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I talk about this a lot that sometimes, but even, 
even if you don't have a ton of time, if you do some planning ahead, there are ways to make, you know, your commute, your, you know, there are all sorts of ways. And we talk about this with reading, you know, a letter recognition on the signs on the way down the street, that kind of stuff. I think finding those opportunities comes from a place of looking for those opportunities. And Mm -hmm. it's really easy for all of us to get so caught up in um, the emergencies that we face on a, you know, especially if we're in a rush and especially if we need to figure out how to get kids in different places. I was talking to someone the other day who's, she has two special needs kids and has to work and she doesn't know how she's going to move forward from this. And she doesn't know what's going to happen to her job. And that's a really, really frightening place to be. But I think there's this, even if it's a small moment of controlling something about our kids learning, finding those small moments to have some sort of proactive moment because it's when we don't have even the smallest proactive moment, the smallest moment of sort of moving forward in some way um, with our kids learning or with planning or with, uh, you know, whatever that we tend to get lost and hopeless. And I, I think, I think we're in a place now where we tend to, talk about the either or. And I don't think that we're in an either or situation. I don't think we have people who have a lot of time on their hands and then people who have zero time on their hands. I think we have gradations of that. And I think it's really important to give people opportunities to think about the opportunity, <clears throat> the opportunities in the small, small moments, because small, small moments are really important, whether that's listening to a story or, um, you know, I didn't know, I didn't know about um, why the, you know, if you learn, if your kid has learned about why the ocean is blue or why the sky is blue, and you can say, you can fake it a little and say, I didn't, I don't know that. Can you teach me about that? These are the small moments that really not only build relationships with kids, but continue kids in their learning and help make learning more relevant for other kids. And by the way, when kids teach us something, or when kids go through the motions of teaching us something, they are actually laying down new connections in their brain about that knowledge and deepening that understanding and making it more durable in their brain. So I don't think we need to think in terms of, you know, an hour long lesson in pancake making. I think we can talk about the small moments that are really, really important. And when it comes to special needs, there's a lot of, there's a lot of talk right now about, not only, oh my goodness, um, you know, what are we going to do with kids that, for example, need a, an aid and that aid can't work right now. And I, 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 that was another conversation I had day before yesterday, um, uh, a woman whose kid has um, really bad behavioral issues, really, really terrible behavioral issues um, for their family. It's really difficult. I, I shouldn't use the word bad or terrible, has significant mm-hmm. behavioral issues and requires uh, full-time aid at school. But that aid has a family member that's high risk. And so they're having trouble finding another aid. She is looking for, again, for the small moments where she's feeling like she's gained, can gain some sort of control. And we were talking about the fact that with her daughter, the moments that she can have just one toe over the line of what she normally would expect for her daughter and raising her expectations for her daughter and helping her daughter feel like, 
you know, everything is hard for us right now. And if you can help us by setting this one place setting on the table, or if you can help us by sitting here for five minutes really quietly while I have this phone call, that would be a huge help for the family. Because the research on, um, there is some research to show that when kids feel like they're supporting the family as a whole, special needs kids, non-special needs kids, neurotypical kids, um, that all of them can benefit from that by having fewer um, mental health issues, negative mental health implications from all of this down the line. Mm. So helping kids feel needed, helping kids feel included, and helping kids feel supported, even if it's a very small gesture for keeping um, learning moving forward and helping the family keep moving forward. But my answer when it comes to parents of special needs kids is always the same, which is the same stuff that works in, a, in the big picture for neurotypical kids works for kids with special needs, which is have, if you look at the research on teaching, this works too. If a teacher has slightly higher expectations for her students, then if she has been led to believe that her students are gifted, even if they're not, those kids will rise slightly to that challenge. And so I think that's a good starting place for all of us is to just put our big toe over the line of what we think our kids are capable of um, and raise our expectations just a hair so that they will meet our challenge in that. Hmm. One, one branch out of their comfort zone. I like thinking about how we'll all remember this in 20 years, both from the perspective of parents as well as their neighbors. You can imagine that if I'm a parent and I'm pulled between my work and the ability to uh, attend to my kids' educational needs, and I'm feeling stressed about that, one way to offload some of that stress is sort of say, what's going to be remembered in, in 20 years from now? And maybe I'm going to let that math proficiency point slide a little bit in the middle of a, of a pandemic and not sweat it quite so much. But I'm going to make sure that the time we have is around the most important stuff around character development, around confidence, around those social skills, around that one intellectual thing that I know my kid was struggling with a little bit and I don't want them to lo lose ground. Maybe that'll be the focus. I think also all of us need to think about what kind of a community we're in and what kind of neighbors we are. And uh, even if you're wealthy and privileged, you can feel like you're under threat. And that I think is going to tempt all of us to close in and just protect your own and forget everybody else. And yet I think you can derive a lot of meaning and comfort from nonetheless still being the kind of person who's a good neighbor and reaches out. So I, I think a lot about, um, keeping an eye on the fact that there are people who are more adversely affected by this pandemic than others. And that the only way we're going to get through this with pride is by reaching out and helping. And so, you know, let's say I think that my kid is going to be fine this year, whether or not they go to school. And maybe I have the ability to keep them home. Is there some way that I can kind of, uh, Seed the space and let somebody else who really needs that resource take advantage of it. Or can I be the kind of neighbor who just on a really small, pragmatic way reaches out and said, you know, this is a hard time for all of us. How are you doing? You want to get some coffee? Mm. I, I do think that makes a difference. And if we walk out of this 
feeling like our communities are knitted closer a little bit better, that instead of having the internet be something that kind of anonymized us and said it linked us together in interesting new pods that we never anticipated, you know, I, I think we'll look back and feel proud whether or not uh, we lost a little bit of ground on the multiplication tables. Gosh, I love that idea. I, I, my brain jumped to if there's a way to create a pod where, um, you know, you reach out a little bit more. I mean, you, you both talk so persuasively and passionately about, about connection and contribution. Uh, and my, my wife's grandfather grew up dirt poor in rural Oklahoma during the, you know, during the middle of the, you know, the, the Great Depression. And, t you know, when he was a teenager, you know, maybe 10, 12 years old, he and the other boys would go and hunt rabbits. And it was this whole, you know, they kind of clear the whole field and they hunt all these rabbits and they took all the meat over to an old folks home where there were people who, were, who had even less than they had, right? And then this is basically how the community got fed. And that sense of purpose that they, they found. And, and I mean, goodness, none of us wishes to be going through a, you know, what we're going through right now. But the idea that a, a silver lining might be, if not the greatest generation, maybe the second greatest generation. What a, what a hopeful thought. Um, if we, uh, to your point, Tim, if we, if we don't turn inwards, but turn outwards and try to raise a hand and help each other a little bit more. Well, it is such a pleasure to chat with both of you. Uh, we will include the, the link to this, this wonderful article, Back to School in a Pandemic, a guide to all the factors keeping parents and educators up at night. I wonder if kids are, they're probably just up playing games and hanging out with their friends. So they're, <laughs> <laughs> they're probably up for different reasons. You are both such uh, uh, founts of, of, of wisdom and, and resource and information for all of us. So uh, um, I really appreciate your time today. Oh, it was so much fun. I love talking with you every time. Yeah, fun conversation. Nice to meet you, Ned. Thank you for listening to Prep Talks. Please subscribe to us for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. Bye.